Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to the Forever Changed exhibit at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. We have uh, interactive kiosks uh, in each section, and uh, within the fort, we have uh, one that's called, uh, you can choose either Fun with History or Explore History in Video. We'll discuss new web extras to augment this program. You can now see in great detail some of the material that we're describing. So all of the, the various topics that we discuss here on the radio show, now people can access online. And we'll visit the Holocaust Memorial Resource and Education Center of Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The first portion of the Forever Changed exhibit at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee opened in 2013. It covers the initial European contact in Florida in 1513 and other early expeditions. The second and newer portion of the Forever Changed exhibit begins with the pivotal date of 1565 when Florida's first permanent European settlement was established. Bruce Gretz is curator at the Museum of Florida History. Previous to this exhibit, there were the 50 years of Spanish uh, exploration, but uh, 1565 was the year of uh, permanent settlement. Uh, it was a year in which the Spanish came in, they expelled uh, the French colony at uh, La Caroline, and they were able to set up a permanent, uh, continuously occupied uh, colony at St. Augustine. Um, the exhibit uh, covers both uh, military history with the forts, also uh, the civilian uh, settlements, and uh, um, also the religious uh, mission system that was established in North Florida. Um, of the uh, different uh, types of uh, fortifications, uh, it begins with uh, uh, palisade, wooden uh, logs, and this is actually based on the reconstructed palisade at Mission San Luis, where they have a fort here in Tallahassee that's been reconstructed. A video presentation in the Forever Changed exhibit describes the early colonial history of St. Augustine. This is a uh, program that uh, the official cultural agency for the country of Spain produced and uh, they were very generous to uh, allow us to use a copy. And it's uh, like animated maps that essentially show uh, using uh, original maps from the archives of the Indies with uh, pop-up labels that give you an idea of what was going on in early St. Augustine uh, in the 1500s, uh, one of the major events was uh, Francis Drake, uh, the English uh, pirate, if you will, uh, who attacked and uh, burned uh, St. Augustine. And uh, that was back in 1586. 
one of the difficulties with wooden forts in St. Augustine was uh, they were subject to either being burned by uh, hostile forces, deteriorating over time with uh, termites, or being destroyed by the hurricanes that periodically came. So eventually they would go from wooden forts to uh, building a major uh, stone fortification, the Castillo. Walking through the forever changed exhibit, you get a feel for what both the original wooden forts and the later Coquina Fort at St. Augustine looked like. Bruce Gretz. We have a uh, bastion recreated uh, of the Castillo uh, in St. Augustine, and uh, it's white and red. Today people know of the Castillo as being of uh, gray stone, but originally it was uh, at a uh, uh, whitewashed plaster over the stone, and then it was uh, trimmed in red, which were the red and white uh, colors of the Spanish flag. Um, located right next to the entrance is uh, one of our uh, touch and feel exhibits, which has a, a section of actual coquina stone with a replica cannonball embedded in it. And coquina had an interesting characteristic where uh, it would often absorb the cannonballs that were fired against the walls. And because of this, the walls would not shatter. And uh, it sustained successfully uh, two English raids and uh, extended sieges, uh, based in part in the way it was constructed. And uh, near the fort, about uh, two miles to the north, was uh, Fort Mose, which tells a very interesting story. And we can go over to the uh, life cast form of uh, Francisco Menendez and hear his story. Francisco Menendez was born in Gambia in West Africa. Later captured and sold into slavery, he was held as a slave in the English colony of South Carolina. Menendez and other enslaved Africans joined the Yamasee War in 1715, but were defeated and fled with the Yamasee Indians to Spanish Florida. In 1738, Menendez and other blacks received permission from Spanish authorities to establish a village called Fort Mose, two miles north of St. Augustine. By converting to Catholicism and pledging loyalty to the Spanish crown, they were granted their freedom. We have uh, interactive kiosks uh, in each section, and uh, within the fort we have uh, one that's called, uh, you can choose either Fun with History or Explore History in Video. And uh, within the fun uh, uh, with history portion, we have, it's a cannon firing game where you have to go through the sequences to correctly load a cannon. And you have uh, a number of uh, implements and uh, ammunition that has to go in in a certain order. So uh, basically it allows you to uh, have a little bit of fun on figuring out if you can load a cannon properly. The Explore History and Video, um, the video includes uh, a re um, basically a recreation of cannon firing at Fort Matanzas that the National Park Service has done, and so you get to see the steps that you uh, hear in ambient uh, sound. And the other portion is Explore History, and uh, has information about all of the surviving or, or recreated uh, colonial forts in Florida. So one of the things we try to do is what we call heritage tourism, where we kind of tie history into areas that people can go and visit today. The forever changed exhibit displays engage visitors in a variety of ways appealing to multiple learning styles. Curator Bruce Gretz. 
We worked with a number of consultants, uh, academics, particularly uh, in the uh, construction of the panels, uh, what the uh, subjects were, uh, how they were presented, actually the, uh, the text portions that we wrote, they reviewed that. Uh, we also worked with the uh, educators within the museum who are used to different uh, learning approaches and learning styles and so we tried to incorporate uh, as much as we could uh, things that could be touched in each portion of the colonial history exhibit uh, background ambient sound and also uh, immersive areas where you can walk into a fort where you walk into a uh, recreated Spanish dwelling um, and in doing so you get a feeling for the time period a reconstructed Gallego's house is an example of a typical 18th century Spanish house in St. Augustine. This is a very small uh, Spanish dwelling that would be in St. Augustine, uh, late 1500s. Um, very simple, very Spartan uh, furnishings. Uh, this is set up for dinner. Uh, a little bit of the ambient background you can hear is uh, preparing uh, for uh, a daily dinner. Um, a uh, interesting aspect of the above the table is um, a uh, tray that would hold the food uh, and this would be above uh, the area where either domestic animals or um, rodents could get at your uh, food so it's a number of things are practical uh, it has a thatched uh, roof and uh, the construction of the uh, house was a type called wattle and daub, where they use a uh, interleaf or uh, interlocking uh, uh, vines with a, a daub material, which is sort of a clay, and then after that dries, they whitewash it. An important motivation for Spanish colonization in Florida was the desire to spread Roman Catholicism around the world. This uh, represents a uh, church in St. Augustine, uh, late 1500s. Um, the people are going to prayer. Uh, as you walk up to the railing, uh, you can look into its darkened church. Uh, you hear the uh, sound of the bells uh, calling the, uh, the people to prayer. Um, we have a mural on the back of the uh, church, uh, crucifix on the wall, uh, several people approaching. Uh, what would be the altar area and uh, candlelight within the church, which is otherwise uh, quite dark. And uh, on the outside here, we have uh, coffered uh, handmade wooden uh, doors. Uh, they're of unknown age, but they're handmade in the traditional uh, um, wooden colonial style. And they even have an iron knocker for knocking to open the church. Doña Maria Melendez, the cacica, or woman chief, of the Nombre de Dios mission, was a Timucua Indian and a lifelong Christian. Her mother, also a cacica, was one of the first converted leaders. Following the church within our exhibit, we have uh, the mission period, and this represents uh, a series of Spanish missions that they set up, uh, almost like a chain of missions across North Florida, and each one being dependent on the other, and all of them actually supporting uh, the center at St. Augustine. And the missions were uh, run by Franciscan monks, and they were, um, uh, like this area of Florida in the Tallahassee, 
Tallahassee region, um, it was the Appalachian Indians who were Christianized, and uh, they lived in a mission uh, along with uh, both uh, Spanish uh, settlers and then also a larger number of the Native Americans. And the mission system uh, went from about, uh, the high points were from about 1650 to the very early 1700s. And in the early 1700s, the English and Creek allies swept through North Florida, destroying the, uh, the mission system. The British period in Florida lasted for 20 years, from 1763 to 1783. The first uh, item that we see is a uh, uh, mahogany uh, colonial desk. It's a drop front desk. Um, it was believed to have been made uh, based on its construction characteristics, probably in Charleston around maybe 1760 or so. Uh, it's attributed to have belonged to Andrew Turnbull, but that's essentially an oral tradition. But it has uh, also an association to St. Augustine. Uh, Andrew Turnbull was an interesting uh, character. He had set up an attempt at, uh, for a plantation of indigo uh, at Smyrna, south of uh, St. Augustine, and he had actually brought in uh, immigrants from uh, a number of places in uh, Europe and the Mediterranean, and uh, including Minorcans. And uh, it ended up eventually failing, and those Minorcans then moved to St. Augustine. The British tried to strengthen Florida's economy by developing trade with the native people. They also left some fascinating artifacts. One of the uh, highlights in terms of artifacts uh, in the whole exhibit is here in the British period exhibit, and it is a carved, very finely carved uh, powder horn uh, that was carved in St. Augustine uh, uh, probably around uh, 1765. And on one side, there's very detailed kind of scrimshaw carving of the different houses and fort in St. Augustine, which gives a very good documentary uh, uh, element to, uh, to the piece. And then on the reverse side, there's uh, figures of uh, Native Americans and uh, military officers, and it appears to represent what we believe to be the treaty of the signing of the Treaty of Piccolata. And uh, with that, we have a uh, iPod-type uh, touchscreen that allows people to see the horn in 360 degrees. So they can turn the horn and then expand and zoom in on uh, details of the carved uh, elements. The second Spanish period lasted from 1783 until Florida was named the United States Territory in 1821. Curator Bruce Gretz. We title this Turbulent Times because it was uh, a period uh, where uh, Spain was able to exercise really only weak control outside of uh, St. Augustine and Pensacola. And as a result, there were uh, incursions into Florida from uh, a number of individuals representing either themselves or uh, attempts from uh, Americans to intervene within the, uh, the northern part of Florida. And there were uh, settlers uh, that uh, were here. And one of the most interesting is the uh, family of the Kingsleys, uh, who were on St. George Island uh, in northeast Florida. And uh, Anna Kingsley is one of the uh, individuals has a, a remarkable story to tell. Anna Majajin Jai Kingsley was born in Senegal, West Africa. In 1806, she was captured, 
brought to Cuba and sold as a slave to Zephaniah Kingsley. He brought her to Laurel Grove, his plantation in East Florida. She was 13 years old. Anna became Zephaniah's wife and managed the property during Zephaniah's absences. In 1811, Zephaniah freed her and their children. She acquired her own homestead and enslaved blacks. During the Patriot War of 1812, she burned her homestead rather than let Patriot raiders have it. At the end of the uh, Second Spanish period, um, we're looking at the first Seminole War. Uh, Andrew Jackson is invading uh, Florida in 1818. Uh, at that point after uh, the war, uh, Spain realized they couldn't hold Florida. And so uh, they negotiated uh, the Adams-Onese Treaty, which was eventually ratified in 1821. And Florida became a US territory. And with that, there was a large influx of uh, settlers coming from from, uh, really throughout the southeast. Florida was named a state in 1845. The forever changed exhibit covers Spanish contact through the territorial period and is on display at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, regular listeners to this program hear you describing fascinating documents and artifacts each week. Now they can actually get a look at what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we've created is what we're calling a web extra. Uh, so on our website, uh, if someone were to uh, download one of the episodes as an MP3, you can listen to past episodes of Florida Frontiers. You can also click on a little button called Web Extras. And what it'll do is take you to uh, an additional page, which will include resources, online resources. So we're always talking about and describing uh, resources here at the Florida Historical Society, archival materials, uh, maps, documents, books, things like that, photographs. And it's all wonderful, and we do our best to describe it on the radio, but we often hear uh, folks coming up to us saying, gosh, that sounds great, I'd love to see it. Uh, so what we've done is create this Web Extra page uh, and included photographs of some of the original material, supplemental uh, information about, uh, if it's a book, maybe uh, an image of the author, uh, anything that we can find, and we've collated that information into kind of a short article, uh, but it just gives uh, our listeners kind of an enhanced learning experience, essentially. You can actually now see the material for yourself on the website. Now, this just happens to be the 300th episode of Florida Frontiers. These available web extras go back to program 278? Yeah, that's right. So we have uh, several of these web extras now available currently online. 
you can actually access a lot of these web extras that are currently live online. So if you go to a website, you can go all the way back to episode 278 and start looking at original documents from Camp Gordon Johnson, for example. Uh, Also the St. John's Railway that that operated in the 19th century. You can actually see the original letters that we're describing uh, in the radio segments. Uh, You can also see letters from Seminole War soldiers that were here in the 1830s. Some of the soil survey maps that we talk about, these really beautifully illustrated, essentially works of art that were created in the early 20th century. You can now see in great detail some of the material that we're describing. We have postcard images online. Uh, So all of the the various topics that we discuss here on the radio show, now people can access online. And you've had some uh, really great help putting this together, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Our 2017 Florida Historical Society Volunteer of the Year, Jerry Klein, uh, who's done a lot of work uh, helping out with the Florida Frontiers TV program, has an extensive background, uh, long career in uh, journalism and uh, in digital media. He's been helping us out actually create these web extras. So he's uh, helping to collate that information together. He photographs a lot of the documents. So some of these collections are quite large. So rather than, say, scanning a book on a flatbed scanner, he's brought his professional equipment, done the lighting and everything for us, and he's created these really nice visuals of uh, collections of books or collections of documents or even some of the larger maps. Now, these web extras are great, but if someone is inspired to actually see a document or artifact in person, they can make an appointment to visit you here at the Library of Florida History, right? Yeah, that's right. And and that's the goal of these segments. We're talking about original material that anyone can find here at the Florida Historical Society Library of Florida History. These are original uh, documents, photographs, postcards, and other material that uh, are essentially housed here full-time. They're on the shelves. We're, we're just kind of taking them off the shelf and, and breathing some new life into, into this material. Uh, but it's all here. It's all under one roof. And, and yes, people can uh, contact the archives, uh, can schedule an appointment, and, and actually see this material in person. Now, this project is uh, moving backwards from 278, but also uh, going forward, these will always be available. That's right. Going forward now with every new segment, we'll be creating a web extra as an attachment. Uh, So we'll work backwards and and start to kind of fill in some of the holes. So some of the material that we have not created an extra for, we will start photographing those collections and we'll start kind of filling that in. But going forward now every week uh, with these archival discussion segments, we'll be including that material uh, online. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the new web extras for Florida Frontiers, just go to myfloridahistory.org and follow the links to our individual radio programs. See me! This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker, a graduate student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida, takes us to the Holocaust Center. The Holocaust Center was founded in the early 80s. We grew out of what was called the Holocaust Project, which is an international conference that our founder, Tess Wise, was hosting in partnership with Valencia College. The conference focused on Holocaust education and terrorism, which was relatively unheard of in the 80s. Um, So Tess was certainly a trailblazer in that respect. In 1986, the Holocaust Center opened its doors. Tess had children in the school system at the time, and they were not being taught about the Holocaust. And Tess felt strongly that our community needed an institution dedicated to teaching about this history and its lessons full-time. Enter the Holocaust Center. That was Terrence Hunter. He is the program coordinator for the Holocaust Memorial Resource and Education Center of Florida, located in Maitland. 
I recently sat down with Terrence Hunter to talk about the Holocaust Center, its founding, its mission, and its future plans. Terrence Hunter tells us more about the Holocaust Center and the ways in which the center confronts Holocaust denial and racism. For the last 32 years, the Holocaust Center has been at the forefront in our community of letting people know the dangers of racism. We do that through a number of ways. Through our permanent exhibit, we talk about the rise of Hitler and that he didn't come to power overnight. The Holocaust didn't start with the final solution. There were discriminatory laws in place, and part of that began with dehumanizing the Jews and other populations. So we confront Holocaust denial simply with our existence, and then we talk about the dangers of racism through our programming. We've done programs where we draw parallels between the discriminatory laws in Nazi Germany and the laws of the Jim Crow South. And we talk about the evolution of those laws and where Nazi Germany got the basis of their ideas of how to treat the Jews as well. So we use those methods to talk about racism, among other things. The Holocaust Center hosts a series of community events each year. The events at the Holocaust Center bring together local partners to educate the public while honoring the victims of the Holocaust. So we host a number of events that are free and open to the public. We have a monthly education series. Each one of those series focuses on a different topic or theme related to Holocaust history. We have three annual commemorations that we host each year. The first is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz, the largest concentration camp. We have Yom HaShoah, which honors the six million Jews who perished during the Holocaust. And then we also commemorate each year Kristallnacht, which is the Night of Broken Glass. It marks the nights of November 9th and 10th, 1938, where there was a lot of violence directed towards Jewish-owned businesses and synagogues and homes. Uh, Jewish men were rounded up and arrested. Synagogues were burned. Homes were burned. Businesses were burned. That night really signified a turn of events. It was large-scale violence that the world was aware of and everyone remained silent. So we commemorate that particular event as a way to remind the community that we all have a duty to speak up whenever and wherever we see injustices occurring. Community events at the Holocaust Center encourage the community to learn about the Holocaust, to remember the victims of the Holocaust, and to fight racism and bigotry. Terrence Hunter has more about the importance of community involvement. The Holocaust Center has made it a point to be a collaborative organization. And we've done that from our founding with our partnership with Valencia, whether it is spearheading a community-wide collaboration to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act, whether it is bringing together other cultural partners to stage a pretty significant piece of artwork, or whether it's just hosting a program and bringing other voices to the table so that we are reaching as many people as possible and helping everyone understand that the Holocaust is not just an event of the past. There are parallels to be drawn to today and dangers from the past that we must listen to. Terrence Hunter explains that through education, collaboration, and commemoration, the Holocaust Center is dedicated to remembering all victims of the Holocaust. Oftentimes, people view the Holocaust as an incident that was Jewish only, or the Holocaust Center as a Jewish-only organization. The Holocaust Center is committed to diversity. We are dedicated to remembering all 11 million victims of the Holocaust who come from various backgrounds. Terrence Hunter tells us that the Holocaust Center will soon move to a new location in order to better serve the community. 
So the Holocaust Center is planning a move to downtown Orlando. The Holocaust Center and the city of Orlando have signed a memorandum of understanding, which gives the Holocaust Center right to use the existing Chamber of Commerce building on Ivanhoe. We're very excited about this growth right now. Currently, we're a 7,000 square foot building, all told. Our new building will have 7,500 square feet of space dedicated to the permanent exhibition. So we will be growing tremendously in size, but it's all to better serve the community. Over the last several years, we've had programs with more than 300 people in a room that can only fit about 100, maybe 150 if we're pushing it. Um, So we're really excited about the opportunity to better serve our community because the community support, especially recently, has been just tremendous. And so that, I think, is probably the most exciting thing. Our community is what has made this possible. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.